Good morning, Michael. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Now, I heard you briefly on with Al Farabee this morning giving us some insight into an interesting decision uh, written by Chief Justice Christopher Hinkson and B.C. Supreme Court yesterday with respect to an injunction sought with respect to churches and COVID-19 regulations. What happened here? Uh, well, quite a bit. <laughs> this, uh, there are really several layers to this, uh, and it's going to be uh, an ongoing and interesting uh, legal uh, issue to follow over the next few weeks. So the start of all of this uh, is it's actually a petition brought by a number of churches uh, from the Fraser Valley, the Riverside Cavalry Chapel, Emmanuel Covenant Reformed Church, and the Free Reformed Church of Chilliwack, along with some individual uh, individuals. Uh, and it was brought against the province of British Columbia and Dr. Bonnie Henry. Um, and the churches and other individuals started the petition uh, arguing that the public health orders, which were put in place by Dr. Henry and the province, um, were unconstitutional. Uh, and the public health orders essentially are designed to stop um, public uh, events and gatherings, including at churches. Um, the rationale given by uh, the province of Dr. Henry uh, for including uh, churches uh, included the fact that church gatherings are um, in an indoor setting, uh, that members of different households come together, that there are uh, extended uh, more than 15 minutes in length, which can increase the risk of transmission, mm -hmm. uh, that older adults often attend services, um, and often there's loud talking and singing, which all, all of which can increase the risk of transmission. Yes. And so that was the explanation for it, and the arguments being made by the churches and others uh, include constitutional arguments referencing freedom of uh, conscience and religion, that's constitutionally protected, uh, as well as constitutional protections involving freedom of peaceful assembly and freedom of association. Um, and so ultimately there's going to be a, a hearing to determine whether those public health orders um, are constitutionally valid given those constitutional protections. And likely what we'll see here is an analysis of what those constitutional protections mean, and then also likely an analysis of um, Section 1 and sort of the reasonable limits uh, yeah. on those various things. So that will ultimately be the issue to be tried. And that hearing is scheduled to start on March the 1st, so a little under a couple of weeks from now. Mm -hmm. But what happened uh, is that when the, uh, the respondents, Dr. Henry, and the province of British Columbia, responding to this petition by the churches, asked uh, Chief Justice Hinkson, who will be hearing the case, for an interim injunction, um, sort of an injunction that would be in place until the case is heard, uh, to order uh, the churches and others to stop conducting these in-person um, services rather than doing them with Zoom or whatever else uh, might be used. Yes. Uh, and so when that kind of an application is made, as you, as you know, and we've spoken about previously, uh, there's a test for that. It comes from R.J.R. McDonald, well-known case, and it's a three-part test. The first part is, is there a fair question to be tried? And Chief Justice Inkson concluded, yes, indeed, there is, right? There's a legitimate issue there about those constitutional protections uh, and uh, the public health orders and how those would interplay, so no problem there. Mm -hmm. The next issue was, or the next part of the test is whether, if you don't grant the injunction, will there be irreparable harm? 
And irreparable harm doesn't mean serious harm. It means harm that you couldn't make up for later by, you know, for example, paying money. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Chief Justice Inkson again found that uh, there could be irreparable harm here, including, and he was satisfied that uh, the harm that could befall people, members of the public, would include the possibility of death. Hmm. Uh, because if people are coming together in these um, uh, at religious services and they're transmitting the virus, both the people in attendance and other people in the community uh, could have a greater risk of being exposed to the virus and that could result in increased death. Yes. So again, he found that part was of the test was met. But the third and final part of the test to get an injunction is referred to as the balance of convenience in terms of um, whether you should, in the interim, prohibit the activity or not prohibit the activity. And on that part of the test, um, he refused to grant the injunction being sought by Dr. Henry and the province. And the reason for refusing to um, grant the injunction is a fascinating and multi-layered one. The, uh, the judge spends a, a fair bit of time analyzing uh, the background of another uh, case, uh, which was the one uh, involving the Wet'suwet'en protests, where there was an injunction put in place to stop the blockades that were going on, including a blockade of the port in yes. Vancouver. Yes. Um, and uh, Justice Tammen, uh, at the time, um, after the first, after the injunction was issued, prohibiting uh, the blocking of the port, a group of people continued to intentionally flaunt the order, lock the port, and say, we're going to continue doing this until the injunction is no longer enforced, um, which uh, was found to be a flagrant effort to undermine the rule of law, intentionally publicly breaching a court order. Yes. And so a order was made by Justice Tammen for the police to enforce the order, and indeed they did. They went and enforced the order, arrested people, but Mm -hmm. then... The Public Prosecution Service, Crown in B.C., decided that even though there was an um, evidentiary basis and a substantial likelihood that these people would be convicted, decided not to proceed uh, with uh, criminal contempt prosecutions because time had gone by, COVID happened, and they concluded it wasn't in the public interest to do it. And so the point that uh, Chief Justice Hinkson was making here uh, is two components. One was, look, if you're asking me to make these, if you're asking the court to make these orders, and then you're not prosecuting people who are breaching them, that undermines the rule of law and respect for those court orders. Yes. And so you're now coming to me, province, and asking for this injunction when you failed to prosecute people who flagrantly publicly breached um, a previous uh, injunction that was issued by the court. I'm not doing that. I'm not giving you the order you want now. Wow. And and moreover. The Justice uh, Hinkson pointed out there are other remedies available to the province here. Uh, and the, it should also be clear that the fact that the injunction was not granted, the judges made clear, does not mean uh, that these churches can resume uh, having uh, in-person services. And the Justice Hinkson pointed, Chief Justice Hinkson pointed out that the Health Act and other provincial legislation already provides for very serious penalties for somebody who breaches the orders which are in place, including, in some cases, up to 36 months in prison, 
in some cases up to $3 million in fines. So the churches and individuals uh, could be subject to jail terms and fines. They could simply be prosecuted for doing that. And so one of the things that he had put to counsel was, why do you need this injunction? You already It's already, under the provincial legislation, unlawful to breach these orders. If you don't want people doing it, simply prosecute them for breaching the health orders. You that, don't need an injunction of the court to do that. Th- that's a really, really good point. What's the answer to that question? Well, his conclusion was that, combined with the fact that you failed to prosecute people who breached the order that was made in the context of the port blockade, meant that, in his view, it was not, the balance of convenience did not favor giving Dr. Henry and the province the order they wanted. And he put to counsel there, why do you want this order? Right? And, yes. and the response, according to the judge, was that the province and Dr. Henry, counsel for Dr. Henry thought that the people would be more likely to follow the court order uh, than the orders already in place. Uh, but he, the, uh, Justice Inkson was not persuaded by that argument, pointing out that, hey, you, you didn't, prosecution service, prosecute these people for breaching the very serious, uh, or breaching what appeared to be very, in a very serious and public way, a previous court order. So yeah. you don't get what you're asking for. If you want to prosecute uh, people for breaching these health orders, you're free to do that. You don't need a court order to do that. And moreover, you didn't seem to vigorously prosecute people uh, who breached the previous court order. So don't come looking to me. So a really interesting and multi-layered decision here. There's also some very interesting history in terms of uh, Chief Justice Hinkson. Um, Chief Justice Hinkson was uh, also also the judge who heard, uh, at first instance, the case involving... um, the uh, proposed law school at Trinity Western University, okay. uh, which was, uh, again, an argument uh, between religious freedoms uh, and whether the law society uh, had acted properly to prohibit or to refuse approval for the law school because of discriminatory policies uh, that university had. They would uh, punish or expel somebody if they were involved in a same-sex relationship, staff mm-hmm. members or students. Yes. which they justified on religious grounds. Um, and that was challenged in the courts. Justice Chief Justice Hinkson was the first judge to hear that, and he found that the, uh, law, the law society had, uh, did not have authority to uh, deny approval to the uh, university as they had done. Uh, but ultimately, that went all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada, and Chief Justice Hinkson's decision in that regard was overturned. Uh, and so... I suppose that's an interesting piece of history because he has some experience dealing with um, litigation involving uh, conflicts involving claims of religious freedom and how far that goes. Yes. Um, And um, Trinity Western University was uh, initially successful with this judge uh, in their um, challenge of the Law Society's decision to refuse approval because of their discriminatory policies, which they justified uh, on the basis of uh, genuinely held religious beliefs. Um, And so that's an interesting piece of background as well that's not apparent on the face of the current decision. Um, And so um, Chief Justice Inkson, in addition to being a very experienced uh, uh, judge, um, has uh, has that background dealing with the previous uh, case, a very high-profile case involving uh, claims of religious freedom and how that weighs up against other values. So 
the this is really interesting on a whole host of levels, and it's going to be certainly something to watch very carefully um, coming up when this hearing starts uh, on March the 1st, uh, because those are important values on both uh, sides of the equation, right? The, uh, there's no doubt the uh, churches and others uh, have... Uh, um, genuinely held beliefs and wish to uh, have services. And on the other hand, um, as the uh, Justice Hinkson uh, began his uh, decision here, saying, "Look, we're in the worst of, we're in the midst of a terrible pandemic, and the provincial government, under the guidance um, of Dr. Henry, is doing its best to protect us from the ravages of the pandemic." And then he goes on to say, "Many are finding solace and comfort in these troubled times in their religious views yes. and practices, and gathering together with others." who share their views and practices. And so that, in two sentences, sets out what the, uh, what the legal uh, conflict is here, and it's a really interesting one. Indeed, and just uh, for the benefit of our audience, after the 11 o'clock news, council representing those churches in this matter will be speaking with us and expanding on some of the uh, issues that you've just touched upon there, Michael, and I thank you very much. We're going to take our first break, and I think we have something on the other end of the seriousness continuum, <laughs> as you've helpfully put it. That's going to be our tease. People will find out what that is when we get back in just a moment. Legally Speaking continues on CFAX 1070 with Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, going from a very serious matter that will be considered by the courts in the coming weeks to the other end of the seriousness continuum, Michael. Yes, indeed. And uh, I must say this, uh, well, this next story is at the other end of the seriousness continuum. It does have an actual impact on quite a few people uh, and has produced a whole bunch of litigation. Uh, and it's uh, issues surrounding what kind of electric vehicles um, you're allowed to uh, ride, like uh, bicycles and so forth, uh, without getting uh, charged with driving a vehicle without a license or insurance. Hmm. Um, and what happened is back in tw- 2002, so quite a while now in the uh, history of uh, uh, how uh, these sort of things develop, yeah. uh, British Columbia uh, brought in some uh, changes to the Motor Vehicle Act and some regulations that allowed people to operate things described as motor-assisted cycles and basically electric bikes. Uh, but what's happened since 2002 um, is that there's been a proliferation of different vehicles of that kind. Uh, and there's real issues about, well, what exactly is allowed and not allowed um, under those regulations? Um, and one of those cases wound up uh, going all the way to the Court of Appeal. Um, so it started with a, a, a JP and traffic court, went to the BC Supreme Court, now off to the Court of Appeal. And even the judges in the Court of Appeal could not agree. They divided up uh, two to one in terms of whether the thing here uh, was prohibited or not. <laughs> so and what so, do we even call this thing? <laughs> well, this it's got a great name. It's the, the thing the person was driving was a Motorino XMR. <laughs> Very well. <laughs> the, the Motorino XMR, if you look at a picture of it, looks just like a racing motorcycle, like, you know, one of those sort of sports bikes. Oh, yeah, it does, but, doesn't it? But, but it's electric, and the, the thing is it's got a couple of... Uh, pedals kind of stuck on the back as kind of a vestigial <laughs> pedal. So things which are kind of behind you would be the most awkward things in the world to operate. But indeed, it's electrically powered. It's got these completely awkward pedals uh, hooked up by a chain to the rear wheel. Um, the thing itself weighs something like 300 pounds. Um, and the, uh, the majority in the Court of Appeal found that 
well, it is possible to pedal this thing using these really awkwardly located tiny pedals at the back of it. They described it as a, well, it's possible it would be a very unattractive option. <laughs> and they could only ma- imagine somebody doing it if they were trying to do it for resistance training, because you'd be trying to pedal up <laughs> a 300-pound motorcycle with tiny pedals located behind you. And so it would I'm be exercising. <laughs> it would be possible, but very, very unattractive. Moreover, you could not pedal it if the motor was engaged. It was one or the other. Either you use the electric motor or you could pedal the thing, and indeed you could do it. It would just be very unattractive. All right. Um, And so the issue for them was, is this thing a motor-assisted cycle? And that really matters because if you drive a motorized thing, vehicle, uh, that uh, is not a motor-assisted cycle as provided for by the regulations and legislation – you're subject to some really hefty penalties, hundreds yeah. of dollars. So it's like you get the same kind of penalty you'd get if you drove your car down the road without insurance. Uh, and so the, those penalties are designed to be very high because, of course, you don't want somebody making the choice, well, I'm not going to bother with insurance, so if I get caught, I'll just pay the some small amount. So we have, you get hundreds of dollars in fines. And so it very much matters, and that's why you wind up with these cases being litigated and appealed and, and so on because there's quite a bit at stake for the people operating these devices. And I should say technology has kind of moved on since 2002. And like on any given day in Victoria, if you are in downtown Victoria, you will see people that are operating like you know electric scooters and one-wheeled balance boards and all these various different things, yes. all of which, frankly, are not permitted by the legislation. And so the only reason people aren't getting pulled over repeatedly and given hundreds of dollars in tickets um, is by the good discretion of the police, mm-hmm. right? You know what I mean? If somebody's riding along in a way that isn't bothering anyone, police are busy, right? They're they're just exercising discretion, saying, look, we just don't need to pull over that person commuting home on their electric uh, scooter and give them, you know, $600 in fines. What are we doing here, right? yeah. yeah. Uh, but what's really called for here is some updating of these regulations to capture the modern reality of some of these devices. And, you know, I don't know whether we need to permit the Motorino XMR, uh, but certainly some of these other things we should be dealing with. And we should be clarifying this legislation, because for heaven's sakes, when you can't get three court of appeal judges to agree on what this means, how is the average person supposed to figure out you know, is this particular electric bike allowed or not allowed? And to give you an idea, the uh, one of the issues here was that the uh, the regulations actually say that the wheels of a motor-assisted cycle must be 350 millimeters or more in diameter. Hmm. Well, pause for just a moment and ask yourself, what is a wheel? Is the wheel... Oh, yeah, the, the rim or the tire? Yeah. Is it the tire? Is it the whole outside? Is it just the inside? Because if you were to speak to somebody who was a mechanic, they say, well, this is the wheel, the metal piece, and then you've got a tire on top of the wheel. Yeah. And so the basis upon which this fellow was convicted um, originally at trial was not because of any of the other elements or how the thing looked. It seemed to meet all of the various other requirements, like the motor was not more than 500 watts. It would not go more than 32 kilometers per hour. Everyone agreed that how the thing looked can't be the determining factor. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, two of the Supreme Court of the Court of Appeal judges found that the fact that, you know, there was some must be some meaning to the idea of motor assisted, uh, 
and such that this thing was really not designed to be pedaled at all other than these kind of pedals stuck on the back that would be very difficult to use. The basis for the conviction was that the wheels were less than 350 millimeters, but this fellow wasn't given any opportunity to um, challenge what that meant at his original trial. And so the dissenting Court of Appeal judge said, well, that wasn't fair. He should have been given a trial to be able to argue, should have been able to argue at trial. What do wheels size mean? Because the wheels, if you include the tires, were big enough. Huh. Uh, it's only if you count the, if you say the wheel, it must be the metal piece in the middle that the tires, that the thing was too small. And then it's also not apparent to any of the Court of Appeal judges, why does the size of the wheels make any difference at <laughs> I was all? Going, I was going to ask, but I felt silly asking. They, they don't know either. They don't know either. We couldn't figure this out. Nobody could give us a good answer. There's no legislative intent apparent here. <laughs> Other things seem to have some safety element, but why on earth the size of the wheels? And so... You know, it's a bit of a mess. And, you know, the Court of Appeal judges and all these, so far we've had three, four, you know, three, four, five judges have engaged in this thing. Um, You know, come on, provincial legislature, time for an update. Uh, Let's get this thing updated in a way that both deals with modern things, and you'll see them in other cities, right? Other places when you could travel, right? You see like like electric scooters and rentals of various things. And, you know, if if we are indeed in a climate emergency, surely you'd want to do things to encourage people to use, you know, small electric devices in a safe fashion to get around rather than saying, you know, your choices between, you know, driving your car or driving a you know, something uh, something else, it seems to me we should be encouraging people to be using these sort of alternative means of transport. They seem like they're good for the environment, probably good from a health perspective. We should be encouraging it. And having a regime that hasn't been updated since 2002 and is so convoluted that you can't get Court of Appeal judges to agree on it really isn't fair for everyone, and we should get that uh, updated and let people uh, have some additional choice and not risk hundreds of dollars in fines uh, when they're trying to drive their Moto, Motorino XMR down the road, right? Let's make yeah. it clear for people. And I already checked the website. It's out of stock for those who yeah. are interested. Um, <laughs> Michael Mulligan, a pleasure as always. Until next week. Thank you so much. Stay safe. All right. Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, legally speaking.